Hey everyone, Ryan here. Just a quick reminder before we start the show that we have a Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash leftanchor. Uh, if you want to support the show and get access to extra episodes, um, you can sign up there. If not, that's also fine. But uh, thanks for listening in any case. Let's get started. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. And today we're going to talk some Anne Rand in light of the PPP fund under the CARES Act doling out about a million dollars to the Rand, uh, Anne Rand Institute. Uh, and uh, amidst many terrible libertarians and conservatives being at the heart of the you know, death and suffering during this pandemic, the love that Ayn Rand has gotten from Paul Ryan to even Stacey Abrams is, uh, is remarkable and I think worth, worth diving into. So for today, we're, we're very happy and pleased to have Toby Olowe join us, fellow podcaster, political consultant, uh, historian. So, so welcome, Toby. And, and why don't you, you tell us why uh, you know, your background is, is such that uh, Ayn Rand is something that you want to talk about and you're going to help us understand. <laughs> and I can define why I'm talking about um, Ayn Rand, I suppose, as someone who read up on American history, sort of got, got a history degree, I became sort of interested in conservative politics and conservative political figures, because I, I wanted to get into them in their mind and, and to understand why they made the arguments that they did. I have actually... On my last political campaign, I did work for a conservative politician looking to become the mayor of London. And so I think I have a very good idea of the different um, nuances and different kinds of conservatism. Mm. Wonderful. It is Ayn Rand, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I, I was I was trying to look that up beforehand, so... Ha, I, I, it rhymes with mine, like Mein Kampf. It's helpful. To... <laughs> I'm just pleased that I get to pronounce something right for once. And um, I think as, as a podcaster, I, I also wanted to know how different political ideologies have been sort of presented to the public. And I think that's probably what my interest is, is as a podcaster is, especially because I want to know what, where the public is and why particular political ideologies affect them the way that they do, which is sure. why Ian is very interesting to me. I, I think your impressions of America podcast is a great project. Uh, I, I, I like to think of us and Ryan, I'm sure you agree as the kind of um, the laboratory experiment in, in awfulness and, in, and uh, in, in if you coupled power and wealth with the most hideous uh, political philosophy possible, what would you get? And so I'm, I'm glad that you're studying uh, from across the pond. By the way, you're joining us across the pond. Thank you so much for staying up late. But uh, I, I think it's important that people study kind of these the, the history and uh, and contemporary problems with um, kind of the the younger offspring from from your great nation. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, so, um, maybe just to start off a little a little background for people who don't know, you know, Ayn Rand was a, uh, a Soviet-like uh, immigrant, I guess. She grew up um, under, you know, the, the, the 
Stalinist dictatorship or, or no, I think she left in the twenties. So, uh, it wasn't quite there yet, but she, she, uh, grew up and even you could maybe detect some of the influences of sort of like Bolshevik style argumentation. Um, but, you know, came to the U S became like a devoted, um, you know, fan of, uh, the just American capitalism and um, stumbled into a job screenwriting and then later became, you know, this big time author of uh, the books. Uh, ma- I think mainly the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged are the big ones. And these became just mega bestsellers despite being, you know, if, uh, for people who have read them, I-, I once tried to crack Atlas Shrugged because um, when I was in high school, there are all these essay contests that were like funded by right-wing lunatics uh, to where, you know, write an essay on, you know, the ongoing meaning and influence of Atlas Shrugged or Ayn Rand or whatever. And so I was like, okay, you know, and they would give you like 10,000 bucks or something, you know, if you won this essay contest. I'm like, well, shit, you know, that's, that's pretty good money. Um, but then I tried to read the book and it's just, just awful. And I've heard the Fountainhead's not quite that bad, but... A thousand pages of just the most blistering, you know, propaganda sort of wrapped up in a like melodramatic plot, but all the characters are horrible and you hate them. And I think I got maybe like a quarter of the way through and just gave up. <laughs> so, so Toby, thank you. Thank you for reading uh, Ayn Rand so that the rest of us don't have to. We appreciate it. <laughs> I, I've done you a great, great favor here. It's funny. If you had won that, uh, essay contest you probably would have ended up as a conservative judge it seems like the way they get you know young conservatives to become you know prominent people yeah there is a you know they call it the kind of wingnut welfare train um and there there's just this vast complex of institutions that just kind of breed up ideologues um you know through a process of indoctrination and bribery you know and I've I've definitely had the thought before that my life would be so much more easy and comfortable if I just didn't have any principles and I could just say whatever the, the people with See, the money. The thing, the real pernicious thing, though, Ryan, uh, is that there are principles involved. They're just odious and and just uh, remarkably simplistic and terrible. So so you know maybe Toby Toby you can try to introduce us to objectivism a little bit and. Uh, and, and kind of, you know, for me, if, if Wittgenstein said that ethics and aesthetics are one, well, that makes a lot of sense because from what, what I've read of the prose, it's just ugly. And I think the immorality of the ethos is, is matching that kind of ugly aesthetic. But, but why don't you, you let us know what you think and, and, and what, how we should understand uh, her philosophy that's hidden in these novels? Well, I think it sort of comes from the fact that she grew up in Tsarist Russia before the, the October Revolution. And once the October Revolution happened, her father, who was a sort of well-to-do chemist, he lost his store to the to this, um, the Soviets. And so Ayn developed this feeling that people who had good virtues, who worked hard, could have their things completely requisitioned from them for, mm. for, for no reason at all. And so once she leaves Russia... After she, 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 she has to work because of the occupation and things like that. She, once she leaves Russia and becomes, you know, a, a, a screenwriter, what she 
is able to develop is a as a as a theory and a view of the moral justification for capitalism. Um, objectivism was the moral justification for capitalism. It saw um, man as a heroic being with with his own happiness as his as his life's work and and, and productive achievement as what he needed to do. So you saw it. It, it was a virtue of selfishness. So the selfishness is good. And, and not only that, but that men actually, because they can think, they have the ability to um, make choices. And because you have the ability to make choices, you have the ability to persuade people and to enter into voluntary contracts. And, and voluntary cooperation is the basis of capitalism. But if you co- coerce people, then you are stopping someone's ability to think. And it's that that um, sort of stopping of someone's ability to think that is the ultimate crime in her system. And I think the the novel Atlas Shrugged and the Fountainhead they they are works of um, romantic realism. They sort of they go back to sort of um, the French literature, maybe a 19th century or people like Victor Hugo, people who were able to stretch out like um, large stories. With, with not really characters, it is, it is it, you know, when you tried to read the book, you didn't see characters. You saw ciphers, you know, these poetic, um, almost like uh, blobs that became that represented different values and different voices. The the good characters are the productive people. I mean, just to set up at Atlas Shrugged, it's a it's a society that's dying. You know, it, it's, a, it's supposed to be a parable for the times that she lived in the 1950s. But it's a society that's dying because all of the productive people are leaving, and the government takes control over all of the productive people, the engineers, the scientists, and their different industries. And because this is happening, the the economy is going further and further into depression. But soon all of the productive people start just disappearing. And then you find out the productive people have been taken away by this figure called John Galt, who was also uh, someone who was productive as uh, as an engineer when he was above ground. But he takes them all to this this other place. And in, in, in this place, they are able to create a society that they want. And, it's, and it harkens back to her, her father. Her father was a, one of the only Jewish students able to get this chemistry degree and start up his own business. And once the Soviets took over, her father decided that he would not work. He stopped working. He stood on his own principles. And she really absorbed that and it left an indelible mark on her. And so she, she absorbed the view that people with good virtues would have their things taken from them. And the only way to show the world that this was wrong, that coercion was wrong, was to create this, you know, this 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 fantasy world that was supposed to be a parable for how people should should live their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty pretty striking to be writing that book in the nineteen fifties, which is like the you know, the the uh I mean, there are plenty of poor people in the 50s, but, you know, like, what were they proposing back then? Like, expanding Social Security a little bit? And, like, the economy, 
you know, relatively speaking, was absolutely roaring. You know, it, it was just just going super well, according to the sort of like principles of capitalism, you know, and like there there's no sign whatsoever of any kind of like problems based on too much redistribution. And yet she writes a book predicting that the whole thing's going to fall to pieces because basically like the rich will do a tax, they'll do a strike of brains <laughs> uh, because the taxes are too, the taxes are too damn high. Toby, do you know if, 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 you know, that personal history is very intriguing, but I know in, in this time period, uh, Hayek, for example, was uh, responding to, to how successful uh, the centralization during the war effort had been and just feared that that would just carry over. And so it was actually, to Ryan's point a little bit, um, for Hayek at least, a, a response to the success of a more socialized way of governing that prompted him to try to kind of combat that. What, what do you know about um, Rand's motivation or about if she didn't see what we, we all think the 1950s were um, in terms of success of, of more centralized and a, a little bit more socialistic approach to governance? Exactly. The 90s, the 1950s did have a more sort of centralized approach to government. Eisenhower was happy to carry on the counter-cyclical demand-side policies of the Roosevelt and Truman administration, but to a left lesser extent. And you had these all these Keynesian bureaucratic um, systems and departments that were set up that were carried on by Eisenhower. And Eisenhower actually... He had many enemies, people like William F. Buckley, the John Birch Society, people like Hayek himself, who did not like the Eisenhower administration and considered him to be um, a moderate to actually a liberal. But I think, and, and Rand follows up from this kind of critique. I mean, Hayek's critique was based on, I think, he, it was based on like, it, it, like the, it was a sweet poison that everyone was taking, you know, mm. that, that once... Um, the, the, the policies go further, people's rights are going to be infringed on. But I think Hayek actually envisaged that, that we would still have a bureaucratic system that would try to make sure that, that people were competitive to try to, um, sort out any asymmetries of information, all, all these kinds of things that would at least, you know, a, a skeleton state. But Rand thought that that was all sickening. She felt that 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 there was no justification for any sort of utilitarian scheme. That capitalism in itself was virtuous. Its principles were virtuous. Even if people, other people suffered, they suffered because of their lack of virtue, their lack of aptitude, their, their lack of being able to think and then you know extend themselves into the world. And and I would say. That was why she created um, these romantic realist novels that were much more sort of celebrations of capitalism, and which were different from um, Hayek and, say, William F. Buckley. I mean, Hayek was someone who felt that um, Christianity was needed for the systems that he envisaged, you know, and he, in, in some ways he was a, a little bit of a traditionalist. People like um, William F. Buckley, you know, when once, uh, I mean, in the 40s, interestingly enough, Rand was a much more significant figure in the conservative movement than someone like William F. Buckley, you know, before he wrote God and Man at Yale 
in the beginning of the 50s. But and there was there wasn't that many people in the 40s because, I mean, it was the triumph of the, you know, the New Deal and the, and the, and the liberals. And and you know, Rand had worked on the Wendell Wilkie campaign and just met a bunch of kooks, um, people like um, Isabel Patterson. They were just people who were completely marginalized. It wasn't until the 50s when the conservative movement started to come to the fore and some um, intellectuals started to come, people like William F. Buckley, that a movement started to bubble up. And the mm. difference between someone like William F. Buckley and Ayn Rand was on the point of religion. Buckley felt that it was Christian religion that was going to help defeat the Stalinist collectivist terror. But Rand, even in her novels, she decried faith. All, even the mem- uh, even in the John Galt speech in her novel, when John Galt comes out and he declares to everybody that um, that that over the last 12 years, he's been taking people out. The, the values that he decries include the values of religion. And actually, on the first occasion that Aaron Rand met William F. Buckley, she said that you are much too intelligent to believe in God. And from that moment, <laughs> there was this, um, I think, there was like a hatred that bubbled between them. And Buckley, at that time, in the early 50s, Buckley really couldn't do anything because a lot of people at the National Review, the magazine that he set up, they actually quite liked Rand. And a lot of his readership liked Rand, people who were businessmen, engineers, sort of uh, people in technical jobs. They, they really did like Rand. And so he had to try not to critique her. But it wasn't until Atlas Shrug came out that Buckley sent his um, people at the National Review, people like Whitaker Chambers, who originally was a Soviet spy, but declared that he was a Soviet spy in order to aid Richard Nixon to get out, um, to try to defeat uh, a Soviet spy. But what what Whitaker Chambers said in his review was basically that Rand's work was the height of immorality. He saw... I mean, the, uh, a sticking point in the review is that all that is left not said in this uh, novel is go to the gas chamber, go. Mm. So he, yeah. basically, he basically saw that Iron saw people as inferior if they did not have the qualities that she possessed or people, the people should possess. He also said that in the novel, there's a lot of sex scenes but there aren't any children being made. It's, it's almost like a children of men thing. There's this people mm. are living for their hedonistic, you know, am, amoral needs, but they're not really doing things that are that can provide for a working traditionalist conservative society. And I think that's what comes clear from the review by the Whitaker Chambers. And it does lead to National Review. There's a, there's other uh, works written in National Review to try to combat Ayn Rand. And it does set up a real division in the conservative movement at that, at that mm. point. Even though Ayn Rand's novels are selling like hotcakes. And in fact, there are members of the National Review 
Whitaker Chambers included, who come back to say that Whitaker Chambers, in a private correspondence to to Buckley a few years later, had actually become more sort of libertarian on economics, and he did say that he didn't feel like Christianity and libertarian economics, which were the things that William F. Buckley was pushing, to work together. He did say that he had lost his Christianity. It was in a private right. correspondence, but it, but it did show that there was this real conflict that people were having personally between Christianity and libertarian economics at the time. No, it's yeah. interesting. You know, Toby, it's... Um people often say that there's this uneasy coalition on the right between the kind of Christian conservatives, the religious right, uh, or the kind of aristocratic uh, Buckley type uh, Christian uh, elites and, and libertarians. But it's pretty clear about what's happened to Christianity on the right, that it just wholesale swallowed uh, the kind of Randian moral philosophy and has adjusted their theology accordingly. <laughs> um, so, so it, it's uh, the, the Chambers review is just blistering, um, but I think it does come down to this this fundamental anthropology, uh, uh, which stems from her atheist theology, but this this anthropology of human beings as individualistic and. Uh, as separating the the geniuses, the heroes, the producers uh, from the looters, right? The looters and the parasites. And to me, the most remarkable thing about the capitalist ideology that this Randian philosophy kind of speaks into is this total inversion of the truth about who the takers and the makers are, right? Because you see on the other side, of course, that the, the workers produce and the capitalists are the ones that don't work and are parasitic. So, so yeah, maybe uh, speak a little bit to that because you, you even have the Mormon Ro Romney, Mitt, Mitt Romney, everyone thinks he's the, the most spiritual man, you know, in office or something. Uh, he's famous for his makers and takers talk, which straight out of Rand, Exactly. I think you have to see it almost like Marx in a way. Marx had a system where you had the, the producers who he saw as the, the workers and he, and he saw almost like a dialectical process where the workers would become more and more powerful to sort of the, the aristocratic period to the liberal period to a, to a communist period vaguely. I think Ayn saw, Ayn had a historical view of, of these things as well. But what she saw is that there were, there were two groups, really. There was the producers who were, you know, architects, engineers, and there was the intellectuals. And the intellectuals, who she dubbed the mystics, had tried to defeat the producers and then there was another group called the Attilas who were like rulers and she said that the Attilas were have always tried to take people over by force she, she felt that they had tried to coerce people into situations where they could dominate them while the producers had through their thinking and through their art had produced societies and instruments and things that would take people into the future but the intellectuals had sided with the the Attilas 
in order to suppress the producers, in order to make the producers victims, which is what she shows in Atlas Shrugged. In Atlas Shrugged, the producers, who are the, the artists, the engineers, the scientists, they are forced by the government to work for them, and, and all of their earnings are taken by the government. And the government becomes a symbiosis of the Attila's, and the intellectuals. Which reminds me of the, the kind of Jordan Peterson claim that the uh, the postmodern neo-Marxists are are taking over, right? And academia, you, you can almost think about the kind of anti-Semitic tropes about um, cosmopolitan elites, you know, and, and all all the, the power in the media and the government is is this kind of uh, coalition. It, it reminds me a bit of that. Almost definitely. I mean, yeah, it with with Peterson, it, it it is strange, you know, some of the things that he says. I mean, but with 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 Rand, I suppose she was very successful in her advocacy of this because of things that were happening in the culture at the time. It, it's interesting because someone like von Mises, who was an economist at the time, he. Once he read Atlas Shrugged, he went to Ayn Rand and he told them, you have told them the truth. You have told them that they are inferior. And you have, you have been the one who was bold to tell them that. And it's not necessarily a take that people like Russell Kirk and Willis Buckley would have had. But it is, it's almost like, I think Ayn Rand and um, Von Mises and Isabel Patterson, they're sort of the writers from the 40s they were very much influenced by the Herbert Spencer view of, mm. of capitalism, which, which had its roots in, in a sort of Darwinian view of the classes. It was a sort of social Darwinism that, that I think pervaded many um, intellectuals in the Gilded Age. It was like people who think and, and can act and have the ability to change the world are somehow superior in a way to other grades of people. Like Iron said that she wasn't racist. She, she saw that racism was was foolish and immoral, but she did have a view that, based on one's ability to act and based on one's ability to make money, there were almost like classes of people, and these classes should have dominance over over others. Yes. But the interesting thing about her audience, I, I think, and, and it's, it's, it, it sort of links into the point you made about Jordan Peterson, is that in many ways, like the sort of time with Peterson, it, it, you know, Peterson is speaking at a time where a lot of ideals are up in the air, especially after 2016. In the 60s, Rand went to college campuses under the MBI Institute, which was set up by her almost like enfant terrible, her, her young um, sort of person who worked with her, uh, Nathaniel Brandon, who was a young psychologist who was making his way at the time. And she had this court um, when she was writing Atlas Shrugged, the, 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 the circle, um, the, the collective, who would meet up in an apartment in New York. And amongst them was a young Alan Greenspan, who obviously became head of the Fed. But... Ayn Rand went to college campuses and talked about objectivism. She felt that the people like William F. Buckley had, would not really 
trying to grab the youth in the way that she was. And a lot of the things that, that attracted young people to Ayn Rand was the fact that broadly in the culture, whether it was on the left or on the right, people wanted to be more authentic. And I think it's something that people miss about the 60s was that you had a civil rights movement, which really inspired a lot of young people and, and the, inspired the Students for Democratic Society, the SDS, to go out and try to push for change, try to push against Vietnam, try to push for African-American civil liberties, but also try to push for a broader sense of being, a broader sense of being authentic, living by one's own principles, living free. And that sort of dovetails with the hippie movement, with the civil rights movement, with humanistic movements, even in psychology, you went from a Freudian psychology where a lot of people were taught by psychologists, oh, you had you have a particular issue, we're going to sort you out in order to make you be normal in society. Psychologists had a humanistic and a human potential perspective where they tried to make people live by their own principles, sort out their own problems, and try to make change in their lives and in the world. And a lot of young people read Ayn Rand not like they read other conservatives. And they saw someone who said, you know, you should live by your own principles. You have the right to think. You have the right to change the world. You should not be coerced. And they saw that in the civil rights movement. They saw that in the anti-war movement. Ayn Rand was against the draft. You know, she was against because she thought that was coercive. So a lot of people were, young people were attracted to Ayn Rand. And um, Newsweek even said that at the time that, a lot of young people are the, the, the children of corporate executives and the children of professionals were attracted to Rand in the same way that they had been attracted to someone like uh, Thonston Veblen a generation ago or Marx, you know. She was not well received intellectually in, the, in academia. People thought her work was just trash. She saw that they saw this romantic realism as faux uncultured literature. It was not of the level of um, people at the time like uh, Vladimir Nobokov. Ayn Rand was the friend of Nobokov's uh, sister, Olga Nobokov, when she lived in Russia. But both of their, Nobokov and Ayn Rand, both of their literary ability or, or their literary uh, production was received in a very different way. Nobokov, who in many ways was trying to produce work that tried to make you feel that you should be more liberal, you should be more uh, authentic, you should be more free. He was also reacting to being living in the Soviet Union. But Ayn Rand was not well received by the intellectual class because her work was seen as, you know, sort of pandering to people. I mean, when she was young, she really... She loved reading um, sort of lowbrow French literature. She, lo she loved the silver screen. A lot of media that appealed to a wider audience. So she was never well received by the intellectuals. Characters in her novels like Dagny Taggart, who might have been perceived as a feminist icon, were not well received by the intellectuals at all. But, in, but among young people who wanted to be free who were attracted to the to all of the sort of freedom movements of the time, attracted to music by the Doors and the Beatles, who, who, want, who wanted to change the world, they were attracted to Ayn Rand's work as well.
Yes. Yes. It's, it's remarkable how, um, look, young people are the center of the own universe. Uh, it's just natural to be solipsistic and narcissistic when you're young. Um, but the, the ethos that arose, you know, not just in the sixties, but, but beyond into today that says you are special, you know, you, you can change the world. You get to be the hero of your own narrative. Uh, that takes on quite a different meaning when like the venue for your, you know, uh, heroic deeds is in solidarity and in collective action and participating in something greater than yourself. It's quite another thing, you know, it's not for no reason. It seems to me that this is an atheistic, uh, work. It's not for no reason that like being the ground of your own being and like morality being whatever, you know, makes you happy in life is your moral purpose, uh, turns into basically the, uh, prefigurative, uh, rendition of the Gordon Gecko greed is good speech, right? Because like selfishness is the virtue you are, you are it's, you are the center of the universe. Um, and boy, if we don't see that in the pandemic in the United States, especially, uh, you know, the anti mask wearing kind of rallies and so forth. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's it's I think we, we see it as appealing to a sort of Jeffersonianism of people who are free. They get to do what they want. They're, but I mean, the thing about on Rand's proposition to a lot of people is that I would say that in the 60s, there was a sort of. It's almost like a French positive, um, positive liberty. There was a sense that you had to being free was about giving yourself up to this great movement. But I think uh, in the sixties, a lot of those movements sputtered out. The Vietnam War ended. You know, the, the feminist movement it, it, it had some gains, but a lot of these gains were individualistic. I mean, so what what happened is that as all of these movements sort of died and, and Americans started to be more co- uh, critiquing about the world in, in the post-Vietnam period and a whole became, started growing in American society, it was filled by people like the human potential movement, people who thought that you, you, you didn't need to go out in order to join a movement to be yourself and to be authentic. What you need to do is to change yourself change the change your internal self and then that would change the world and i think that transformation in the mind of, of american culture did lead to a, an increased popularity for philosophers like ayn rand instead of the kinds of freedom philosophers that that took root in the 60s yeah um that that's a Right. It seems not very hard to explain why someone who talks about, uh, you know, just doing whatever you want and becoming rich is like morally good, like that that finds a ready audience. Um, yeah, greed is good, you know. But, but I think uh, maybe worth going through a little bit um, to, to see why the academic reception was so hostile and, and why her, her thinking is, is to, like just basically juvenile at the end of the day you know, like all libertarianism. Um, here's a quote from, I forget the book. I, this may be uh, Atlas Shrugged. Uh, no man may initiate the use of physical force against others. Men have the right to use physical force only in retaliation and only against those who initiate its use. And so that, of course, includes stuff like trespassing, you know, or someone, uh, uh, you can use force on someone who has, you know, uh, uh, attempted to take your property or access it. 
But, you know, this is essentially a begging the question um, when it comes to like the morality of of doing, you know, initiating violence um, from the point of view of the property holder. You know, I'm engaged in defensive violence to protect my property. But if you're on the other side and you say, I don't agree that that's your property and I'm doing uh, I'm just like taking what should be mine then you have, you know, uh, uh, just like disagreement about who is entitled to what. And that's like the move of libertarianism that just doesn't stand up to any scrutiny. Like everyone supports doing violence in the case of someone uh, not getting what they're entitled to get. Um, and and uh, Rand, like most libertarians, just builds in her theory of um you know n- normative entitlement who is o- who is des- deserves to own stuff namely the rich and then any you know infringement on those you know that property in the form of taxes is uh you know illegitimate and and can be responded to with violence and the and i think the the clearest way to see the the problem with this logic is to to try to you know go back to to history you know, because like you think about land, land, uh, presumably, I mean, cl- clearly must have been at some point in the past, no one owned any land. There was no such thing as property and land. And then someone comes up with the idea of of uh, owning stuff and they put a fence around it and they say, this is mine now. And if you come onto it, I'm going to attack you. And that is necessarily aggressing you are doing some kind of you know violence to the total population of people who previously had access to all of these uh you know resources that anybody could have could have accessed this 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 land and whatever may be on it or under it and um you know what what happened and as a matter of historical fact what what did happen is people just took stuff they just took things and then that was built into property rights that are now you know considered uh uh you know legitimate to defend um and you know that that's the the initial appropriation problem that not even robert nozick who is much much smarter than ayn rand could could solve um and so you know it's it's it, th- this is why I think you know you you have libertarians of various form varying levels of sophistication, but the people who are really Ayn Rand devotees, the objectivists and stuff, are are really the bottom of the barrel. I think we'll get to that in a little bit more when we start talking about the the pandemic loans. Yeah, exactly. I mean, she she saw property rights as inviolable; they could not be stepped upon at all. And I think it it was part of the the the, the coercion um, line that she has. I think, but it's it is interesting that if you some libertarians had tried, I think in Chile, for example, to initiate constitutions that did make sort of property rights and um, rights to uh, people's incomes inviolable, and so that there is there. I mean, there is a way structurally to limit people's rights to property even beyond the way that the the american constitution which is already a conservative constitution does already but i don't think and and some people have tried to say that objectivism was you know a serious uh work it has an uh, 
epistemology. It has an ethics, you know, it has an, its own aesthetics and it, it comes with this uh, ideas of um, volition from Nietzsche and, and understanding. But I don't think that's what people should be left with from Rand. She was never a real philosopher or an intellectual like that. She was a romanticist. It, 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 it lay in her uh, the the inspiration from the, the from the French romantic realists. It was about trying to create something that would inspire people for capitalism. It was it was. I mean, she was arrogant in herself, and I think after she had written Atlas Shrugged, she did try to start. I mean, the the with um, newsletters like the for the new intellectual and she did write about her philosophy in those works but i mean by whether it by newsmen or by academics they all just saw this as, as deeply shallow it did not deal with the central problems in, in, in society in a, in a in a real way and and i and i do think that she she's completely lost on on that count, and she can only really be seen as uh, as really a, a romanticist. And, and 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 it's probably why you know, in the Reagan administration, the New York Times said that oh, Rand is the novelist laureate of the Reagan administration. Maybe that brings us to the 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 actual news hook, which maybe we should have put at the beginning, um, which is I the fact. It. Yeah, that 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 right the. Uh, Ayn Rand Institute, New Ideal. Oh, very smart. That's the that's their like blog they have. And back in May, they wrote this article by Harry Binswanger. Um, that what they they always got a good name there over the right. Um, <laughs> it's called "To Take or Not to Take," um, and it's all about the care the CARES Act dilemma. Do we get a piece of this PPP money? And um, they they say, uh, we will take any relief money offered us. We will take it unapologetically because the principle here is justice. And um, they, they continue uh, to see why focus on a fact that everyone seems determined not to know. The government has no wealth of its own. Private philanthropists like Jeff Bezos and the Bill Gates Foundation can and do own wealth that they give in charity, but the government has no funds of its own. It can only redistribute the wealth of others. Government cannot provide help. It can only force others to provide it. What the government would giveth, the government must first taketh away. Now, right out of the gate, this is like as an empirical matter, this is a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> like... <laughs> And this is why, you know, you see that the, the, these are the really low grade. This is like the cheap eggs kind of B grade libertarians that you find at the, you know, the nobody wants to buy at the supermarket because that's just like not true at all. Um, the government has a shitload of wealth. The government owns like 24 percent of all the land in the country. Um, and, it, you know, in, in many states, it's upwards of 80 percent. I think they own 88 percent of Nevada. Like that's worth something. That's that's some wealth, um, and you know more importantly, when you're talking about a big recession, the government has the you know the ability to borrow without limit because you know you you have a collapse in economic activity, and therefore you know a desire to to save money and a and a fall in 
you know, prices because people aren't spending anything. And so you can just print money or, or, uh, you know, uh, issue bonds and have the federal reserve buy them, which amounts to the same thing. And, uh, you can finance these sort of transfers, so to speak. You can put money into people's pockets at no cost. It doesn't cost anybody anything to a, to a first approximation, you know, and it's only when you start hitting some kind of inflation, um, you know, you, you start seeing price increases. Well, now, you know, now we have to start getting some taxes in here to keep inflation down. But, you know, for the foreseeable future, this is not, you know, the, the, the government has this complex of institutions which, can, which allow it to, you know, uh, uh, provide things to, to people during times of recession. And um, so that, you know, like just as an em- empirical matter, you know, this goes through this Austrian economics. It can, it can only, uh, you know, the government can only take wealth from some people and give it to others. Um, and in fact, actually, you know, uh, uh, Brad DeLong and Larry Summers wrote a paper about uh, borrowing during a depression to do stimulus. And the, what they found was that not only could this help, you know, sort of like keep the economy pressurized, it would actually pay for itself in terms of increased tax revenue down the line because you would prevent damage to the economy. You would prevent people from being unemployed and losing their skills, you know, and and so on and so forth, you know, like factories going out, going out of business and, and rusting and such. And, um, so, you know, uh, that, that's like, it's, it's like the inverse of the, like, like the laugher curve shit, you know, where like tax cuts pay for themselves, um, which is like not true, you know, unless the, the tax rate is like a hundred percent. Um, but in the case of fiscal spending during a depression, it actually is the case that it pays for itself. It's literally better than free. Like you get more money back in the end. But that's kind of beside the point, I think, in terms of this, like, like, cause it's all about moral justifications, right? And, um, so they, they quote an, an, an article by, by Ayn Rand herself. Um, she says, Quote, since there is no such thing as the right of some men to vote away the rights of others, and no such thing as the right of the government to seize the property of some men for the unearned benefit of others, the advocates and supporters of the welfare state are morally guilty of robbing their opponents, and the fact that the robbery is legalized makes it morally worse, not better. The victims do not have to add self-inflicted martyrdom to the injury done to them by others. They do not have to let the looters profit doubly by letting them distribute the money exclusively to the parasites who clamored for it. Whenever the welfare state laws offer them some small restitution, the victims should take it. And the so it's like we're we're basically have reparations for the welfare state right here for for one thing, like that that uh, um, you're you're sort of ca- casting it you're like trying to get a piece of this because like the whole thing is coming at your expense anyway, um, which is you know. Again, it's it's complete nonsense. But what's interesting to me is how this, I think, kind of reveals the like underlying psychology of the Randian political movement. Because in her books, the the heroes of the story, the John Galtz and so on, they never would have done this kind of shit. Their whole thing was taking a moral stand like her father did, you know, maybe perhaps even in a justified way, saying like, you know, you took away my business, you damn communists, um, and I'm not going to work for you 
I'm going to suffer instead. And I'm, I'm, I'll live in poverty if that's what it takes, because you've done this wrong to me. Um, and, but now when it comes to the pinch, when you, when you, when you end up in a situation where like the, the reality of everyone's collective dependence on each other is absolutely inarguable, where, where it's like the government's got to rescue us or we're all going to starve. Uh, suddenly they got to figure out some kind of excuse to get in the welfare queue with everybody else. And here it is. And that was what, in fact, Ayn Rand did when she got old. She got on Medicare and Social Security and took cash those checks. You know, she didn't stand out as a moral exemplar and like burn them in the, you know, in front of the Capitol building or something like that. Uh, it, it was just... No, I'm, uh, well, uh, in this case, uh, it's, uh, it's reparation. So I'm going to live re my retirement in some kind of comfort and not starve myself out of this crackpot moral principle. And so, you know, it's just, it's such a brittle philosophy that even its own adherents really can't stick to it in any kind of consistent way, I think. Yeah. I mean, in the, in the novel, at least shrug, Hank Reardon, he's, you know, he's he's creating his own metal against the 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 state, and he's he's losing money for it and, th and things like that. And and uh, Francisco Danconia, who's a playboy businessman, he's destroying his own plants. You know, these people are taking giant moral stances against the, the government, against the potential for being enriched by by the government. But when Rand was in that position herself, I mean. She, she, she never she never did although although I, I would say that maybe it's consistent with her philosophy in the sense that it's just um hyper selfishness you know that the characters right. in her novels take on a more sort of sacred heroic uh, stance than than the ultimate i think um extension of her philosophy which yeah, perhaps is true. why Jeff Bezos and so many of these rich bastards or these mega corporations, uh, it fits the, the Randian picture of the hero, despite the fact that they don't pay taxes, that they uh, are basically grifting off of uh, like how many years do they have negative cash flow? How many years were they right? Just in the red. Um, the system, this complex that Ryan spoke of is one that tremendously benefits through law and through accounting and various other uh, social constructions that are enforced by the force of law. Um, these rich people who this, you know, Randian philosophy says are the heroes and the makers, despite the reality that their money and the distribution of power and wealth really has to do with how the state has set things up and enforced things, not because of their genius, right? And, and so there's this kind of very clever inversion of who the workers are and who the parasites are, um, that goes along with this kind of mythologizing, this narrative that these individuals, whether it's Steve Jobs or Bezos or Elon Musk, are, are geniuses. And, and let's not talk about the history. Let's not talk about all the support and the origins of how the wealth was accumulated, right? I mean, exactly. I mean, you just have to go to Rand's novel herself where the, these characters are actually taking these, these deep moral stances against the government and even like um sort of crony capitalism is brought up many times you know you can <laughs> you're not we're not going to be we're not going to make money off of our of the work that the government says oh no you can you can 
earn these government contracts or you can take this government land to do specific things. And people actually take moral stances against doing that. But, and I think what's quite interesting is probably, um, if you look at Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley was set up a lot by military contracts, government loans, things like that. But there's this perception of the internet as this sort of like Jeffersonian sphere that's, you know, the... The California is the end of the westward expansion, and now we're going to the internet, and we're going to be sort of cowboys and individuals. We're going to set up you know, companies like PayPal, and we're going to be free of, of Bitcoin. We're going to be free of government regulations and government systems of uh, regulatory control. But it's just like, you know, in reality, it's a mix between government investment, government training, the exploitation of, you know, less skilled or unskilled labor, and then, a, and then a sort of deification of these entrepreneurs as, you know, gods, basically. I mean, it, these novels don't reflect what happens in real, real life because they can't. They're, they're right. a complete inversion because it, she just... She's speaking from the perspective of someone who was young. I mean, and it, you have to go back to her childhood to really understand this person. She was young. She, she was not well-liked. She was very introverted. She didn't play with other girls. She, and then she, she, thought, she saw her rejection by all of these other people as a sign that because she was hyper-intelligent, they respected her for intelligence, but they didn't like her socially. She wasn't invited on dates. That it was because she was special. She was special. She was virtuous. It's it's almost like the goth kid, you know. Like there's all of these goth <laughs> kids who could become Iron Rand devotees. Some of them do. Some of them grow out of it. Some of them don't. It's just these these people. I mean, a lot of uh, young people who went to Connecticut private schools. They said, you know, we were either um, Randians or post Randians. It's almost like a a a, a place that. It, it, you go through through your formative experiences which she had herself you know and and she internalized all of this thing at a very early age which led to a lot of the books that she created what was it when during her goth period that ellen greenspan was attracted to her is that how she snagged him is that yes. you know she, she didn't really like she didn't really like greenspan to begin with uh. I think but he's so handsome. A... How can that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's a genius. So you got <laughs> right, right. That's right. No, you know, it reminds me. It reminds me of the uh, you know the aphorism that hurt people hurt people, and and you know, many times we conceive of that as kind of the cycle of abuse in domestic violence and the next generation and so forth. But here, hurt people hurt people means that Anne Rand gave us the, these novels that uh, ended up really indoctrinating a lot of, of young people and, and carrying on to today. What, what, do you, what, what do you think her, her current um, legacy or, or esteem is? How do you think she's still operating in the world to influence people? I mean, she's a best-selling novelist, I suppose. But uh, It's, it's, it's that, interesting yeah. because since the 80s, she's grown in popularity. You know, people in Silicon Valley have the named after her or, or have their companies named after her. Um, I mean, people say that Rand Paul was named after her. We don't know if he wa it wasn't. He denies it, but he's a fan. You know, Paul Ryan actually yeah. gives his staffers Atlas Shrugged to read. He's, you know, he's admitted oh. this. And 
Stacey Abrams. Stacey <laughs> Abrams. Yeah, wait, but she isn't she a romantic novel, uh, kind of like a pulp romantic novelist, and maybe she likes the aesthetics more. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that uh, if you just look at her, this, the, almost the sexual dynamic in all, all of her novels, they were always about, you know, like there'd be a guy, and then um, he he would fail the the lady in some way. And then, so she would go with a better guy because of that. It was always, like, it was deeply Nietzschean mm. and romantic. Uh. And, and it really la- lacked the moral sense. And even in her own life, she was dating the, an actor called Frank O'Connor, and who was also an artist. But when she got older and he grew stale, she started dating a, a young man. And she convinced her own husband that cockholding him would be a good idea. Ah, so maybe Abrams wants to be the VP because look at the moral failure and total pitiful stale Joe Biden, and she can kind of, you know, politically cuckold him, perhaps. <laughs> I mean, even the Trump administration, Rex Tillerson, people like that, they, uh, Mike Pompeo, they're all, you know, people who have claimed to be fans of Ayn Rand's uh, novels. You know, it, it is, and I think there's a real difference. It is the way you become romantically attached to the conservative movement as opposed to reading Hayek and thinking about, you know, different information centers and how you should structure society. It's, it's really about the, 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 the love of this kind of politics. It's, it's, it's not really, it's, it's forms are much more, I would say, um, impressionistic in, in a way mm. that they're less, they're less strict and, and, and detailed. Back to BDSM, it's a bunch of people who uh, have been humiliated and want to be, they, they want to have the will to power to become the ones who humiliate others. Interesting. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I don't know a better note to end on than that, Ryan. You got something else? <laughs> that works for me, yeah. I think we've, we've uh, kind of covered the territory. But yeah, con- congrats to the, uh, the Ayn, Rand, Ayn Rand Institute for getting on the welfare train. Um, $1 million, uh, maybe, for, for yeah. like 30, 30 employees or something. One last thing I would say is that, you know, in 2008, after the financial crisis, the, the, the novels shut up in popularity because people thought, actually, oh, the world of Ayn Rand is coming into being. But in 2016 and, and, and since then, I do think the sort of, um, you know, in, in some ways, a, a humanistic plus a sort of libertarian arc of history is starting to burn out. And we mm. and I and I think there was a New Republic piece recently that showed that young people are not joining the the institutes that set up by people like Leonard Peikov and you know other institutes for objectivism anymore. And I think it's probably they're more attracted to nationalistic movements and things like that. So I, I do think mm. there is an arc of, of Randian appeal that, that takes us from a sort of moderate like Eisenhower to Reagan and then probably has its apogee in the, in the George W. Bush uh, administration. But, yeah, I could be wrong. So, you know, you never know. <laughs> it's definitely, I think, a lot easier to... to, to... Uh, believe in these sort of individualist fantasies when, uh, you know, society has been set up such that it actually is possible to succeed somewhat, you know, if you try. And, and, um, 
um, when we're all in the coronavirus toilet together, no matter what we do, it's a, it's it's getting increasingly more ridiculous. It is. I mean, just go back to the fifties. The Gini coefficient showed that there was less inequality. People had an easier time of get getting work, an easier time of going to college if they wanted to, an easier time of getting housing. I mean, this wasn't the same for African Americans. African Americans were, you know, a bad position because of Jim Crow. But right. if you were a white guy, it was an easier time, and and you could be romanced by not only Rand but people like uh, Jack Kerouac. It was there was a sense that. Uh, expressing yourself was 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 the next thing that people needed to do but and i'm i'm not sh- necessarily sure is that's what people think they need to do today yeah yeah put food on the table that's kind of a precondition for any kind of anything else you want to do well and, and insofar um, as young people are trying to express themselves these days um and, and i think are made fun of sometimes for being social justice warriors or or you know thinking it cool to become uh, part of the protest look i'll take that over the randian nightmare of selfishness as virtue any day right so if it, if the way if the way that you need to be be political to push for 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 justice and fight for justice is cuz you think it looks cool let's let, let's roll with that for now let's let's take care of the narcissistic teenage years that way yeah, absolutely. It really was just the narcissistic teenagers. Um, yeah, yeah. Pulp philosophy. I mean, it's, <laughs> it changed the world, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See that that she could have ended up as Morrissey or something like that. But she... <laughs> <laughs> there needs to be a counterfactual uh, historical fiction written there. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, Th- Toby, we really appreciate uh, you know you're, you're joining us for this. Is, is there anything else you'd like to add, or um, you know maybe uh, promote your podcast or, or tell the audience? Yeah, I, so we do this podcast called Impressions of America. We're sort of going from the 1950s to today, sort of detailing different political movements and how they expressed themselves and captured particular audiences. And yeah, we've had guys on from podcasts you guys may be uh, have known. Like QAnon Anonymous, Chapo Trap House, writers from different publications. Uh, yeah, we have we have a lot of fun, and I, I think that we're we're really able to get a sense of why particular things captured people at particular points in in history. Great. Yeah, we'll throw a link to that in the description. Um, so yeah, check those guys out. And um, Toby Oloe, thanks for coming on the show. And thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. All right.